0: We're going to be going through a new sermon series starting today and over the next uh, I think five or six Sundays we're going to be doing this. How many of you uh, when something breaks you uh, you you might say it out loud or you might at least think it I know a guy. Right, how many of you know a guy? Go ahead, raise your hand if you know a guy. Like When something breaks like you knew who to call like I know a guy right right. I saw this on, on this meme uh, online and I I, I thought of the sermon series, but I'm going to be honest, I also thought of Art Pettinato. So uh, where, where is it, Dusty? I know a guy that knows a guy about the thing. Uh, it's, a to, it's totally an Italian thing to say uh, right there. I grew up, uh, Meg's family, Meg's, Meg's father's name is Gino Bartoletti. And I don't get many more Italian than that. And, uh, and so I, I spent a lot of time throughout our dating and whenever we go to family functions around a lot of Italians. And, uh, and this is an experience I think I've heard some of her relatives say things like, you say, I know a guy that knows a guy about the thing. It's okay. Uh, forget about it. You know, so, uh, so that's actually the thing that I thought of whenever I was thinking through this series. That when I moved here, I didn't know anything about the area. So I had, uh, I, I knew back home where I took my cars to get fixed. I knew where, uh, I knew where if you if you needed someone to look at something at the house or some, if you needed to go to a bank. Like I didn't know where, what bank to pick. Like I knew nothing about the area. So I depended on a lot of you in this room to help me find my way around. I mean, I found my mechanic because. Because John Baker knows a guy. And, uh, and that's, I went to his, his mechanic, is now my mechanic. And so, uh, and, and then my guy became Art. Art's my guy. If I say I know a guy, I'm usually referring to Art Pattinato, because if I don't know the guy, Art definitely knows the guy. So, uh, so we all know a guy. So the sermon series that we're going through over the next couple weeks is actually called I Know a Guy. And you can take that off now, Dusty. It's probably distracting people to look at Marlon Brando. So, um, but here's here's what uh, what sparked in my mind and in my heart as as I was thinking through and praying through where could we go out for the first of the year? So uh, our culture can consume us very easily, and we can listen to the voice of our culture to, to give us our answers to our tough questions. And so we're trying to think about even morality, what what we should do and think and. For me, it comes down to how I'm going to train and teach my kids. For some of you, maybe it's your grandkids or maybe you're not in that phase yet, but we're all lifelong learners, whether we want to accept that reality or not. We are always learning something. And culture wants to teach us and, quite frankly, at times, teaches us at a more expedited rate than we allow the scriptures to teach us. And the one thing that Pastor Tim always drilled into me, and I know that Adam has heard it several times, I know that Jordan has heard it several times. When you're up here, you preach the truth, you live your convictions. So you don't stand and use the pulpit to be a place to preach your personal convictions, use the pulpit to preach truth. And you live your convictions. You disciple convictions. Convictions get played out in day to day. You don't stand up here and say, this is what I think the word says. You just preach the word. You allow God's Holy Spirit to do the convicting. So as I was thinking through, what do we really need to talk about as a church? And as I was praying through that, I I kept coming up to, and this was right around November 20th, which was a pretty big day in our nation, right? Uh... Isn't that the day we voted? Wasn't it? No, it was November 6th. Sorry, Trump thought it was the 20th whenever he first announced it. But uh, So I did vote. I, did, I promise I didn't miss it and think it was the 20th. But it was all around this political season, and I just kept thinking about, like, we're so polarized here. We're so polarized in culture. If you let culture be the thing that is answering your tough questions in life, man, you are in for it because there's no clear-cut way to get truth. There's no truth Facts are expressed as opinions, and and opinions are expressed as facts. News comes up and you can't even trust it. You You have to research whether the headline you just read is actual fact or not. That's the kind of world we live in. I didn't want the church to become a place where we addressed politics, but I think it's important that we not let culture become our answer or where we run. So, the more I prayed about, the more I felt like we need to hit some of this stuff head on as a church. So, that's what we're doing. We call the series I Know a Guy because at the end of all this, when we preach truth and we preach this is what the Word of God says, then we let the Holy Spirit work that out in your heart. We hopefully see discipleship happen in the body. We're able to wrestle with these topics in smaller groups and in personal conversations through discipleship. We're going to talk about how do we respect a government and a political system that at times we don't trust? How do we respond to a homosexual agenda and a homosexual community? And how do we love people the way Jesus loved people? How do we address poverty? How do we address environmentalism? How do we... What's, what's our role in this? What does the Scripture actually say about these things? What does the Scripture say about abortion? So w- then, out of that, we can have discipleship conversations, and we can have small group conversations, where we talk about what God's stirring in our hearts when it comes to a response. What is truth doing to my heart, and then how is that being lived out? Because we can't be ignorant on these topics. And we can't brush them aside because at times they're very uncomfortable to talk about. We're going to talk about sex trafficking over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about abortion. We're going to talk about pornography. We're going to talk about the LGBT community. We're going to talk about pro-life. We're going to talk about governmental transitions. We're going to talk about respect for authority. We're going to talk about the environment and global warming. We're going to talk about stuff that, I, as I look through the annals of what I personally have communicated from this pulpit or the pulpits in the past... The stuff that I shied away from for one reason or another. I don't think out of fear, but I just did. And I didn't want that to be true of us. So I want to give us a spot where we can sit and learn this stuff. So I want you to know over the next six weeks, some of these topics are going to be heavy in nature, but we're not hitting them from an angle of telling you what to do with truth. We just want to throw truth in your lap and pray that God infects your heart with it. That's our goal. That's our prayer. So Jordan's uh, this week, and he's going to be talking to us this morning. But I wanted to give a clear overview of where we're headed over the next few weeks. It's called I Know a Guy, because at the end of the day, we have the salve that fixes a broken culture. And it's Jesus. We have the hope of the gospel. And that's the salve that fixes a culture that is broken and trying to break us. And we have that truth. We live in that truth. So at the end of the day... I know a guy at the end of the day we have a fix no matter what culture throws our way no matter what uh, an agenda against the gospel has to say we know a guy that brings a loving grace and truth filled salve that heals the brokenness of this world And we get to live in that truth. We get to live in that reality. And we need to wrestle with those realities and those truths here. Because if we're not wrestling with it here, it's a pretty good chance we're not wrestling with it anywhere else through the lens of the gospel. So that's our prayer. That's what we hope gets accomplished through this. I'm going to pray and hand the rest of the time off to Jordan. God, thank you for your word. I'm thankful that it does talk about this. That it does teach us how to live in in a broken culture and live in a world that we know Because of the curse of sin is broken, but you give us your spirit and you give us your power and you allow us to live here in this. And we've been given a high calling from you to live in the light of your truth. So I pray that truth prevails here in this place today and moving forward as we open the pages of your word and see what it says about topics that sometimes make us squirm in our seats a little bit. Lord, make us uncomfortable, but fill us with your spirit and give us a response that's centered in you. In your name I pray, amen.
1: Well, good morning. Um, you know, as Adam kind of introduced the series, uh, I can't help but think we live in, in probably one of the most polarized times, certainly in my lifetime. you know, Probably not ever. I wasn't alive during the 60s. I didn't, I didn't see some of what went on in our culture. But, but uh, in my lifetime, I can't remember a time period where there was such antagonism... Between competing cultures uh, in our society, and uh, what 's really sad is that a lot of that has even bled down into the church you don 't have to look very far to find competing beliefs even within bible believing you know christ loving members uh, of a church and so Uh, as we are approaching a very unique season. you got to admit, no matter how you voted on on November 6th, as Adam said, um, this coming, I think it's Friday, Trump is inaugurated. And he's going to be a unique president. He's going to be uh, very different from a lot of the men that we've had at at leadership within our country in the past. And so there are going to be a lot of strong opinions about him uh, on both sides. A lot of people in favor of him. A lot of people opposed to him. And... Uh, that opposition is very much tied to a broader uh, almost fight that's going on between what I would call traditional conservatism in this country and the beliefs and the people who were kind of raised in that and then uh, maybe progressive liberalism is the other side of that. Progressive liberalism uh, and and just the competing nature, the wrestling for control of power, the wrestling for control of the culture itself. Uh, And it's going to be... A very bumpy road I think that's my opinion but through all that uh, we want to gain a better perspective of as believers in Christ as people who believe that we know the truth how do we respond to those who don't believe the same way that we do because we're gonna walk through over the next few weeks a variety of of hot-button topics we're gonna try to delve down into the truth what does scripture teach about these topics. And as Adam said, we're not trying to lead you to a place of of informing your convictions. We're going to let the Holy Spirit do that. But at the same time, and and recognizing that, because we're going down these hot-button topics, there are going to be people who come to different convictions. There are going to be people who read the same truth, who look at Scripture, and, and they both hold Scripture to a high value, and they come to a different conviction about how to live that out and how to practice that. And so... As we, go into, as we go into the sermon series, and we're trying to look at these isolated topics, I wanted to start things off, and in fact, I, I asked Adam when we were discussing the sermon series if I could lead it off, because no matter what our viewpoint, we still have to interact with people. No matter what our viewpoint, we are called as a church body to be unified with each other, and then as a church, we are called to be a light unto the world, and then the light has got to be attractive to the darkness, They've got to see something in us that is attractive. And so we've got to be at peace with the world that is, that is against us. So I wanted to examine how do we do that? How do we, as we are convicted in how we live our lives, how do we interact with those in the church who don't share those same convictions? And how do we act with those outside the church who don't share those same beliefs? Uh, why, don't you, why don't we pray together and then we're going to, open up into scripture. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning our our hearts are open and our minds are open that through your eternal truth, through your word, uh, we are able to learn um, about what it is to be more like you, about what it is to love in the way that you love, but also to be righteous in the way that you are righteous, and that we were able to take this and put it into practice in our lives. So be with us this morning through my words. Holy Spirit, I pray that you are here working upon each of us. Amen. Uh, I thought the best place this morning, if we're going to answer that question, how do we live at peace with each other? How do we live at peace with those who believe different things than we do within the body, outside of the body? One of the best places to start with is in Romans 14. So if you would, open up with me. We're going to read several passages of Scripture. I'm kind of going to jump around. But we're going to start off in Romans 14.1. If you were following along in the Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it's page 655. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you want one, feel free to take this. It's our gift to you. Um, give you a moment to turn here. Romans 14.1 says... As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let, that, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, if you turn, we're going to stay in chapter 14, but move over to verse 13. It's the next page if you're in this Bible. As evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and of drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And if we jump down to 15, verse 1, it continues We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify that God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, already in this passage, if we're following along, starting back in, in verse fourteen one, we start to get a picture of what Paul is talking about. There's, there's some truth here that's pretty evident right off the bat. Paul is, is uh, getting involved in a dispute that is happening in the church in Rome. And there's a dispute between the believers there. Uh, we see it. We, we, we don't know a lot about it just from this verse, but from some other texts, uh, if we'd continued reading all the way through verse 14, we kind of get an idea of what this is. There's a dispute. Some people are claiming that it's okay to eat whatever you want, and others are eating only vegetables. And there's a fight going on, and this is among the church. And so Paul jumps in, and he says... One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. But let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Now, we're starting to get a picture of how we're to believe, but before we really dive into Paul's solution to this, how do we how do we coexist? How do we live at peace for one another? I want to call our attention to a different passage, to a parallel passage in Corinthians 14. Because this, when I when I heard this for the first time, this completely opened up my eyes. This is really interesting. In 1 Corinthians, it's the very next verse, or very next book of the Bible, Paul is now teaching to the church at Corinth. And in chapter 8, verse 1, it's on page 661 in this Bible, it says this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and and through whom we exist. However, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. What is going on here? It it, it may start to be confusing, but I hope I can clear things up a little bit. This is another dispute in the church at Corinth between believers, and it sounds very similar. It's along the same lines. One group is eating meat, and another group is not, and they're fighting about who is right. But it's actually two very different situations. See, in Romans, Paul is speaking to the church, and what he's talking about is a group of Christians who are not eating vegetables, or or, excuse me, who are exclusively eating vegetables. And the passages that we skipped in in verse 14 go on to talk about food being clean and being unclean. And it talks about which day of the week you should be worshiping on. And what we start to see is that this is a picture of something that Paul is often uh, speaking out against, which is the carryover of Judaism into Christianity. We, saw, we see throughout many, many of Paul's letters, throughout Galatians, throughout Ephesians, through many of his letters, Paul is at odds with teachers who are trying to bring the formal moral law of Judaism into Christianity and enforce it upon other people. What's going on here is this. In the marketplace of the time, if you lived in a pagan society such as Rome, in, in that time frame, you could go to the market, you could buy meat, but you didn't really know what it was. Or they might tell you what it is, and that's not really what it is. So if you have a strong conviction that you are not supposed to eat pork, and you go to the marketplace and you don't really know, is this pork, is it beef? I have no idea. The only solution is that you're going to refrain from eating meat at all. You're going to stick to vegetables. Now in Corinth, it's a slightly different situation. And here we get a little bit more clear understanding about it. In this situation, in its city like Corinth, again, a pagan setting, Most of the meat in the marketplaces would have been blessed by a pagan priest to an idol. Think of of the Greek mythologies. Think of the gods, that there was a god for this and a god for that. So the pagan priest would go along and say, I bless this in the name of Zeus or Hermes or whoever else. And so that meat is then sold into the marketplace. And the Christians that Paul is addressing in Corinthians say, no, 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 we don't want to eat this meat because it's been blessed by idols, but Paul calls them weak. He says, we know that there's only one God. We know that, that idols are not real. It's not a real thing. And therefore, you're weak if you believe that and you only stick to vegetables. Now, here's the amazing thing about this. If we think about it in Romans... Who is the group, if you think think about the early church, the early church consisted of Jews that had been converted to Christianity and Gentiles that had been converted to Christianity. Two different groups, two different backgrounds, both professing the same belief in the same Christ. Who out of that group in Romans would probably be most likely to have a problem with eating pork and other unclean meats? It's those from the Jewish background. They were accustomed all their lives to following the Jewish dietary laws. And so even though they are now believers, even though, as Paul attests, nothing is unclean, you can eat all of this. They cling to those practices. Their conscience doesn't let them eat anything from the marketplace. And Paul calls them weak. And if they're weak and the ones who eat anything are strong, the ones who are strong in this setting are the Gentile Christians. They didn't come from that same background. They don't have the same hang-ups about eating the various kinds of meat. In that, they have a freedom that the Jewish Christians didn't have. But look at Corinthians. If we look at Corinthians, it's almost the exact same situation. But here's a group of people that is wary about eating meat that has been best by pagan gods. They have a carryover from a a former superstition about offending or, or, or worshiping idols. If we judge between those two groups again, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, who's more likely to have the hang-up about eating foods blessed by idols? It's the Gentile Christians. And Paul calls them weak. And in this case, it's the Jewish Christians who are strong in their faith and who understand. And here's the amazing point, and this is the mindset that we need to have as we begin to understand Paul's teaching in this passage, and it's this. Every single person who comes to faith comes from a background and a culture. And that culture affects you in such a way that in some aspects of our faith, you are going to be strong. You're going to pick up on this quicker than other people will. And yet, in some aspects of our faith, you are going to be weaker than other people will. Other people will see things more clearly than you will see them. Just like in these two passages. Two different groups, different backgrounds, same faith. In one situation... One group is strong and the other is weak, and then the situation is reversed. And it all has to do with how they came out of, their, or, or what culture they came out of. And that's the amazing thing about culture, is that we all have this. We all have a background belief system that informs how we think about the Bible, how we conduct ourselves. Much of it is, is not, s- strictly speaking, from the Bible itself, but rather it's just how we raised, how we were raised, where we come from. And this is true of everybody. I once saw a study uh, a couple years ago. I read a study in a psychology magazine about a test that was performed uh, between Western American students and and Eastern students from Japan or China, somewhere over there. And they were both given a test. And it was was designed to see how their brains are are wired uh, differently. And on the test, there was a question that I remember that stood out. And it was something like this. They were given three options. And they said, which, uh, which is most similar? And it was like a picture of a baboon and a picture of a chimpanzee and a picture of a banana. Which is most similar? And almost overwhelmingly, the American students said the baboon and the chimpanzee because they're both animals. In fact, they're primates. They're from the same family. They're very similar to each other in that regard. But almost overwhelmingly, the Eastern students picked the chimpanzee and the banana. Because the Eastern mindset is wired differently. When they read the word similar, when they see something like that, they don't think in terms of what are we, what type, but they think in terms of relationship. The relationship between the chimpanzee and the food that he eats is much more similar than the relationship between a chimpanzee and a baboon. And to us who are raised in the West, we're like, that doesn't make any sense. No, 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 it's the baboon and the chimp. They're the similar ones. But in the East, they're saying the same thing about us. And this psychology study was designed to illustrate a point that Being raised in that culture versus this culture, it literally wires our brains differently, how we think about life, how we interpret things. And this is true of all of us within this culture. Think about how much your background is influenced whether you were raised in an urban setting or a rural setting, whether whether you came from a family that struggled to put food on the table or you had an abundance of everything. Think about your uh, ethnic background background and how that affected you. Most of us are of a similar ethnicity here, but think about it. if you're African American or 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 Indian American or Asian American or even just think about the difference between like western like British European and and like Italian wave immigrants that came here. Different cultures that come together have a different belief structure and it, and it affects every single one of us. In fact, this is very often one of the big problems between the traditional conservatism and the progressive liberalism. It's a difference in background. How we were raised and how we approach life, who our influences were, is going to affect how we see the world. It's going to affect what we value, what we see as important, how we think that our government should be run, how we think that we should interact with people. And so, in the passage, in Scripture... Paul calls it out. He says, hey, this group's weak, this group is strong. But we don't have Paul telling us who is right and who is wrong in our lives. We have scripture, we have truth, but how we interpret that truth how we come to the convictions that we have about that truth, we don't have somebody to judge for us. And so the, the one thing that I, want to, that I want to establish as we dig deeper into this and figure out how are we to interact with one another is this: there are going to be some areas within our faith that we have strong convictions, and you know what? we're wrong. And there are going to be some areas where we have strong convictions that we're right and we don't know what they are. So we're going to live by those convictions. But at the same time, we're going to recognize that other people are in the exact same situation as us. And that's where Paul continues. Back in Romans, in verse 14. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And that's the next piece that we want to get to. How, and particularly within the church, how do we interact with people when we have different convictions? And I think the best way to understand the message that Paul is getting at is to frame it in terms of traditional conservatism and progressive liberalism. Because if we see how those two are interacting in our society, we can contrast that to what Paul is calling us to, and it's a radical difference. See, think about traditional conservatism. It's probably closer to the person in this passage who's abstaining from meat. They have a self-imposed regulation, right? They have a way of living that they're going to hold to. They're going to deny themselves some things for the sake of being right. Traditional conservatism believes that there is a right and a wrong. And when traditional conservatism interacts with other people, it tries to enforce those rules upon people. Think about Christians. No, no, no. That is sin. Do not do that. That is a sin. I'm going to call you out, and as Paul says, I'm going to judge you on it. Now, judgment here, what he is specifically meaning is condemnation. He's specifically saying, "You are. I'm condemning you because of what you do. Because of the way that you act, I'm looking down my nose at you. I am devaluing you because you don't hold to the same moral conduct that I hold to. That's the traditional conservative mentality. And we see that playing out in our culture. We see that in the news, and we see that on social media. We see how when it comes to politics, the conservative group likes to point their finger and say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. They judge others by their by their actions. Now compare that to what I would call the progressive liberal mentality. See, progressive liberals have looked at the way that traditional conservatives have approached the world and have said, no, 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 you guys don't have a clue about what it means to live in peace and harmony. The way that you do things is very judgmental and you're condemning people and it causes conflicts and it causes strife. We can't live that way. That, that's a dead end for this culture. So, so what does progressive liberalism say? Kind of like Adam mentioned, they turn around and they say, well, since we can't really know truth, You know, nobody has truth. Nobody can know what truth is. Even if there is an absolute right and wrong, we can't really know what it is. And so in order to live at peace with one another, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. You get to choose what's right for you. But in turn, you don't get to tell me how to live my life. I get to choose what's right for me. We're each going to determine what is right and we're going to live according to that conduct And we're not going to bug each other about it. And in that way, as long as we give each other that freedom, we're going to be at peace. The problem with that mentality, it sounds kind of good at first, but the problem with that mentality is that it's just the other side of the coin of the traditionalist conservative judgment mentality. Because what happens when a progressive liberal comes in contact with a traditional conservative they mock them. They shame them. They look down on them. You, you can't judge me, they say. Your judgmentalism is your downfall. The way that you live is your downfall. What are they really doing? They're judging. They're condemning. All that they're saying is that, that there is no truth, but that in itself is a truth claim. If you tell somebody there's no truth, there's no way that we can know the truth. That's a truth claim in and of itself. you're saying that you have a better view or a more correct view of the world than the other person. It looks different, but it's just the other side of the same coin. And what that means is that you're going to have to look down on the people who don't think and believe like you. That's the, tr- that's the progressive liberal mentality that we live in. And you see this all the time in the news and the social media. This is the conflict. This is the, th- this is the problem. And so this is why Paul is calling us to a very radical difference in how Christians approach those who don't believe the same as us. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then in, sh- in verse 13, Therefore not, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. See, what Paul is calling us to is not the progressive liberal side of things. He's not saying don't pass judgments, at least not evaluative judgments, because that's exactly what he's doing. He's looking at these two different groups and he's calling somebody weak. That's a judgment. He's saying you're wrong. He's not, a, he's not a progressive liberal. He's not saying, we don't know what's wrong, so do whatever you want. He's saying, no, you're wrong. But then he turns around and he says, but those who are strong do not pass judgment. In other words, the traditional mentality says, hey, we need everybody to look like us. And the progressive mentality says, we need everybody to look like us. And Paul says, you're both wrong but the strong person is the one who needs to change and to accommodate. It's the person who is mature in Christ, the person who is strong, who recognizes that I'm called to live at peace. And so even though I have a strong conviction about this one area of life, and even though I think God is calling us to live this way, when it comes to interacting with you and having a relationship with you, I'm actually going to change myself. If I'm strong and I think I have a freedom in in the gospel, and you are weak, and you are, are abstaining from something, you know what? I'm going to abstain too. I'm going to give up my freedom for the sake of you. I'm not asking you to change. I'm the one who's going to change. And if I'm the one in the example, if I'm weak, and I feel a strong conviction that I'm not in... in Uh, I'm not supposed to engage in this activity. Paul's not saying give up that conviction. He's not saying engage in that activity that you have a strong conviction about. What he's rather saying is, for the sake of the relationship with those around you, do not judge them. Hold to your practices, hold to your convictions, but accommodate them by being in their lives without condemning them. This is is an astounding way to live. And I hope that we see how radical this is. Because this is not what our culture calls us to do. Our culture says, no, no, no. Either freedom is, is not telling anybody what to do, or freedom is making everybody look the same. And instead, the Christians are called to accommodate, to bear each other's weaknesses. And this is also why I take us back to that frame of mind about why... Uh, understanding our culture and understanding that everybody has culture is so important because we don't know. We don't necessarily know who's the weak one and who is the strong one. What we know is that I have this conviction and you have that conviction. And I'm not going to change. I'm not going to tell you that you're you're right in doing it. But I am going to love you. And I'm going to open up my life. And I'm going to open up the doors of my home. And I'm going to welcome you in. And even though I disagree with what you're doing... I'm going to continue to pursue a relationship with you for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. And we need this mentality in the church, especially in the church. Think about how many divisions are in the church these days. I mean, we have many different denominations and different styles of church and different styles of worship. And and nobody is immune to this, by the way. I mean, just this morning, I'm, I'm... Preaching on this subject, and I get onto social media just this morning, and I saw a, a friend on social media had liked a post by uh, Brian Houston, who is the pastor at Hillsong United, and and the quote that was on there that he said was something along the lines of uh, "You are not called to be an Im- imitation of anybody," and it's and it's kind of this message that he's proposing that you know you are unique, and God has called you to be you. And in my head, I'm thinking, doesn't that make the focus about you and not about God? And, and I don't really know if I agree with this. And I know a little bit about Hot Hillsong, and they're a lot more Pentecostal than I am. And they're a lot more like, you know, raise your hands in the air and, and get excited than I am. Uh, and so on this post, I made a comment, and I, and I said, uh, what about Ephesians 5.1? Therefore, be imitators of Christ. And I felt really good and snide for a moment before I really, I just wait a second. There are people who are responding to Brian Houston's message because their background tells them that they are supposed to conform. Their background tells them that they are supposed to live rigidly in a way that they feel stifling and it actually keeps them away from God. And here I am enforcing my view that I feel is better on these people and trying to make them feel bad for for what I think is an incorrect view of theology. We do this. It's it's almost second nature to do this. And so, within the church, we've got to recognize that there are going to be those who don't believe in us. But, we share one common thing, and that is, we are saved through our faith in Christ. And it's exactly that that we need to focus on if we're to have the power to do this. Because this is difficult. I mean, I just shared a little blurb. This was just me this morning on a Facebook post? What happens in the real world when, as Adam said, I mean, you're, you're dealing with homosexuals. What happens in the real world when you're dealing with people who have extremely opposing views, extremely opposing political views of you that, than you, or or cultural views than you? What happens when somebody is is talking about something from a regulatory level that's going to affect your job? If they got their way, you could be out of a job because of what it meant for our country and what it meant for, for the economy. You know, our tendency is to want to fight. Our tendency is to want to fight to put our views up in place and hold them up. And Paul is saying, no, for the sake of the gospel, you have to let them into your lives. You have to bear with them. And we read in verse 15.1 and 15.2, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul shifts gears a little bit here because up to that point, throughout chapter 14, he's addressing brothers in Scripture, when Paul is addressing brothers, he's talking about brothers under faith, brothers under Christ. He's talking about the church. So all this time he's been addressing, you're to bear with one another. He's talking about unity within the church. But in 15.2, he shifts gears. He says, "Let let each of us please his neighbor. Our neighbors are no longer our brothers. Our neighbors are just that, those who are outside. So this teaching doesn't simply apply to the church. We're not simply to be accommodating because people share the same core belief as us faith in Christ, but even people who share a completely radical view and a completely different view of life and religion, we're to be accommodating and loving to them. How do we get the power to do that? The answer is the gospel. And that's where Paul takes us to in 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now, notice a couple things. One, through our endurance, this is going to be a difficult thing. Through our encouragement, it's going to be a hard thing. We're going to need to be encouraged if we're to live this out. But that we might have hope. What is our hope? Our hope is Christ, our hope is in the gospel. And so here's how it plays out. We need to focus and we need to remember what that hope is. Because that hope called to us and it brought us a value outside of, what we typically, of how we typically find value to ourselves. Because isn't that the traditional conservative who lives by a moral code and wants to impose it on other people? Isn't that really what he's getting at? I am building my identity. I'm building my value on the moral guidelines that I live by. And so when somebody else doesn't live by those, it actually kind of devalues me. That's why I have to fight so hard. I'm actually devalued if I don't fight to impose my view on you. And the progressive liberal lives by the same code, except it's the opposite. When he says, no, everybody's got to be free to, what the, to do what they want to do. I need to have the freedom to live my life. What he's really saying is that I find my value in choosing my own path. And if and I if am not allowed to do that, If you try to impose on me your viewpoints, then I am devalued. So I have to fight against you because my value is in being able to make my own choices. But we're in the gospel. When we are in the gospel, we have a different value. Our value is not in how we perform and not in how we choose. Our value is in Christ. We sang the opening song this morning that... In tenderness, Christ sought us. He brought us into his fold. When we get that, when we understand grace, it lets us radically change our viewpoint. Because no longer do we have to be devalued when we don't get our way. If you're not imposing your morals on somebody, if you are not being free to choose, it's okay. Because you know what? You're now living for Christ And your value is found through him. And the reason for that is because that's exactly what he did for us. He bore with us in our weakness. We were sinners. We were poor and weak and blind. We were the ones that Paul is talking about in this passage. Christ is had the ultimate freedom. You don't think Christ understood more about freedom and more about right and wrong and how to live and how to please God and what life meant than any of us? And yet he consigned himself to a life of self-discipline, to living a moral code in order to get closer to us. He valued a relationship with us so much that he gave up the ultimate freedom. He gave up his life willingly Because it meant that he'd be able to draw us to him. That is our hope. That is our inspiration. That's how we find the power to do this. We recognize what Christ has done for us. And we extend that to those around us. And the only way that we can actually do that is because Christ has actually taken that same spirit, his spirit, and he's put it into us. That spirit of grace, that spirit of understanding of strength and freedom and the willingness to put that all aside for the sake of love and the sake of relationship, he's put that into us. That is our hope. That is where we find our strength. And so how does that look? How how does that practically work out in our lives? I don't know. This is the piece that we were talking about. This is where your convictions are going to hit the road. You're going to learn truth over the next few weeks. You're going to hear truth from Scripture, what Scripture teaches. What does that look like when you take it outside of these doors? What does it look like when people come into our doors and clearly don't look like the culture that we have here in this church? What does it look like when you're interacting with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with the people at the grocery store? I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like for you. Because we need to live out the convictions. Paul tells us that if we give up on those convictions, if we let ourselves be tempted by culture to do something that we are convicted we are not, it's sin. It drives a wedge between us and Christ. And yet, we somehow need to learn to abide by those and also be accommodating to those who don't share those things. And I'm sure that we could give examples, but I don't think that's the point right now. We're going to work that out amongst us over the next few weeks. We're going to work that out as we have conversations out in the hall and as we're in small groups and as we talk with our partners. We're going to work out what does this look like for me, that I'm called to love and to value the relationship of others so much that I'm giving up of my freedoms or or I'm engaging with somebody who acts in a way that I'm not comfortable with. How do I love them? How do I be Christ to them? And so we conclude here, and and I just pray that we understand this and we draw on the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult teaching. We do need endurance. We do need encouragement by your Spirit. For we cannot do this alone. If left to our own devices, we fall back into the old patterns, the old habits. We judge, we condemn We mock, we look down on those who are not like us. And yet you have called us to a radically different life. And so I pray, Lord, that you teach us, and you teach us by your example. You remind us of what you did for us. You remind us of how you worked in our lives and what you were continuing to work in our lives. And through that, may we be a light in the darkness. May we advance your kingdom. And may we bring you joy. It's in your name name we pray, Christ. Amen.